Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we get all dressed up to cry into a karaoke microphone. So grab your flask, your bold lip color, scarlet or sea puppy pink, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the best lipstick name ever. And let's get into it. This week on the pod, we're continuing our conversation about recovering from narcissistic abuse, but we're going to do things a little differently since we've already kicked off this topic. Instead of starting with my stories, we're going to dive into some deeper psychological stuff and I'll throw some personal stories in along the way to help clarify. I'm also so happy to have John Lee back on the pod to help us navigate this topic. Hi, John. How are you? Hi. So excited to be back. Thanks for having me. Yay. Yay. Well, I'm so excited you're here. And the first thing I want to say, I just want to be so clear that I misgendered you the first time I had you on. I referred to you as he when your preferred pronouns are they, them. So I wanted to apologize for that. And thank you for your patience with me as I unlearn some of the programming I have around gender. No worries. And thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. And I appreciate your generosity with me so much. And I, I'm, we have kind of chatted a little bit about how, what we're going to cover. How do you feel about diving into some of this deeper stuff around recovering from narcissistic abuse. I'm super excited because I also wanted to help listeners get some more practical, tangible things that they can look out for um, to make healing more um, understandable. Yeah. Oof. Awesome. Okay, cool. Um, like I said, we, we chatted the other day briefly kind of about some of the topics that we wanted to cover and you were blowing my mind with the knowledge you were dropping. So I made a sort of map to guide us through this. Let's start with the terms procedural memory and implicit memory. These are super important for understanding some of the effects of narcissistic abuse. So can you give us some working definitions of those? Yeah, of course. Looking at implicit memory is really what to look out for when we are trying to work through and heal things like people pleasing, walking on eggshells, perfectionism, because without that understanding, they can feel kind of like abstract concepts. Mm -hmm. And when it comes down to really tackling it, it's kind of like, where do I even begin? I know this is an issue for me, but I don't quite know what to look out for, what to adjust. Like, what are all the subtle ways that uh, my internal experiences feed into these challenges? Right. Yeah. So um, basically I'll start with the difference between explicit and implicit. Okay. Um, Explicit can be broken up into episodic memory which is kind of like what happened to you. And there's also semantic explicit memory, which is like facts, names, dates, stories. These are things that get consciously recalled. 
Okay. Um, but then there's things like implicit memory. And these are the memories that are all the nonverbal memories. They're memories of what we smelled at a time, what we saw at a certain time, the sounds we heard. Oh, I said that already. Uh, in our environment, um, how we felt in our bodies. Okay. Um, and so also it's, like- it's not the stuff that's just like, uh, it's sort of the less obvious stuff. It's the stuff that's kind of going on behind the scenes when something happens. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And even things like beliefs and meanings we make at different times in our lives, they can get internalized and they can get imposed on how we are interpreting events later on. So like I said, and kind of like you mentioned, explicit memories are consciously recalled, but implicit memories they get activated less and less voluntarily. Okay. Usually there's some kind of association or cue that brings them up. So explicit memories are held in the left hemisphere of our brain mainly. Okay. And implicit memories are held in the right hemisphere of the brain. And implicit memories are felt in the body in a flash. And sometimes when we think about an explicit memory, it brings up the implicit memory that came along with it. So mm. for example, when we recall some pleasant experience that we had in the past, we might in a flash feel a, a fragment of the pleasant feelings in our body when we mm. recall the explicit memory. So the pleasant feelings that come up when we think of it are the implicit memories that get brought up. There's also a subset of implicit memory that is really important to understand when it comes to healing from trauma. There's procedural memory, which is under the umbrella of implicit memory. And these okay. are the memories that we can think of as like muscle memory, but it's not always through our muscles. They're basically memories around anything involving skill and function, but especially things that we had to learn at some point and reinforce through repetition over and over and over again until it becomes super automatic. And oh my God. Wait, can I? Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had a memory of something and I want to ask if this is a procedural memory. Mm -hmm. So I was staying at a girlfriend's house with, and her husband lived you know, their house, she and her husband, and they had ha like kind of partied and he, and they, they'd both gotten drunk, but she had gone to bed and he had kind of passed out on the couch. And I tiptoed into the kitchen from my, from the guest room to get water. And the sound of the, um, of the water woke him up. And this guy is a very, very sweet guy. He's not my dad, but I kind of went into my dad just woke up from being drunk mode mm -hmm. and I hid. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like, so automatic. It was like, I have to hide. Yes, exactly. I, exactly. Okay, so that's yeah. a procedural memory. Okay. Yes. And it shows how reflexive it was. It's not like you thought about it and decided to hide the reflex kind of took over. Right. right? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And that's what makes things procedural. They are things that can happen on autopilot. We don't have to think about all the steps. We just know we need to accomplish something. And in this case, like what you described, it happens so automatically. It wasn't even a decision. But things like driving a car and using a computer are examples of procedural memory. 
because through all the practice, we no longer have to think about the steps involved. We can even drive while we're spacing out. Mm, totally. Right? I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yep. And there's also another thing that's important to remember, though, when it comes to healing from trauma. I mentioned our left hemisphere of our brain tends to hold explicit memory. Our right holds implicit memory. Okay. But when people have been through environments where there is ongoing threat, and this happens over a long period of time, especially when people are young children, mm-hmm. their brains get more and more primed to disconnect the left and right hemispheres of the brain. Interesting. And that's because the brain is going into survival mode, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain things that can get in the way of survival, like thinking too much about other things, it's going to slow us down. Like if there were a real dangerous survival situation, there's no time to think. You have to just react. Right. And um, back in cave people days, this was really adaptive. Like if there was a predator around, there's really no time to think about anything else. You have to be in that reactive mode. Unfortunately, our brains just haven't evolved Evolved much beyond that yeah so our brains are not very good at discerning um is this a real survival situation or is this some kind of psychological threat Mm -hmm. so our brains still do this but then children's brains are even more susceptible to this disconnection Mm -hmm. so when people's brains have been primed in this way that means the implicit memories and the procedural memories can really take over. It's like the other parts of the brain are just not online, not communicating to keep that all in check. Right. And that's also why when people can get highly, highly triggered and they've been highly traumatized, they might have difficulty accessing language even Mm because that's something in the left hemisphere of the brain. They might have trouble accessing reason in those moments, it's like the reaction and all the flooding of implicit memories just completely take over and take up all the space inside. It makes me think of um, EMDR. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so in case anyone doesn't know, EMDR is a type of therapy that was created to treat uh, war veterans who were experiencing PTSD. Because what you're talking about, I think, is uh, well, I don't know if it's exactly what happens with war veterans, but I think it's applicable at the very least, Mm -hmm. but it's essentially the left and right sides of the brain get disconnected. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if they hear like a car backfiring, they, that brings up the implicit memory of I'm in war again. Mm -hmm. And they, they can't access the logical, reasonable side of their brain. And so they literally will. And, and so because of the procedural memory of, uh, I'm in war, there's a threat, I need to start punching or killing or mm-hmm. or, or running or screaming or whatever, mm-hmm. they go into that procedural memory. And so what EMDR does is it's, it's, um, I've, I had EMDR therapy years ago. So it's, it's like, there's a light, a long light, um, and it goes back and forth and you follow it with your eyes while you think about the traumatic event that occurred and the belief that you have So for me, I was assaulted and my belief was, um, men don't love women. And, um, so I would, my eyes would go back and forth while I was thinking about that, thinking men don't love women. And 
then I would do the exercise again, thinking, well, some men love women <laughs> um, and, and like kind of growing and like creating neural pathways, mm-hmm. essentially that connected the right and left brain, left, left and right sides of the brain in my mind, you know, to get me to a place where I could believe that there were actually some men who truly loved or were capable of loving women. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. May I share one more quick thing Please, um, about the, the parts of the brain shutting down? Um, yes. So there's a really important part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. That is the part of our brain that is the most evolved. Mm-hmm. That allows us to take a step back and observe things and be self-reflective. Also keep certain impulses in check. Mm-hmm. That is the part of the brain that can really be susceptible to shut down when we are in a stressed out state, a threatened, triggered state. And the degree to which it gets shut down, it, it varies. It, it, all, it varies based on the level of trauma that someone has lived through, um, the level of triggering in the moment. So if it is really, really shut down, then people really completely lose lose touch and lose access with the part of them that can step back and be like, wait a minute, is this reaction really about what's happening right now? There might be moments when it's not entirely shut down that they can still access that part of them. That's like, wait, what is going on right now? But then there are times when we're just way too triggered and that part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex gets completely shut down. Mm. And we might really fully believe that this reaction is completely reflective of what's happening right now. Mm. Oof, that prefrontal cortex, man. Um, Yes. (laughs) Okay. So I had an example that I wanted to throw in here to kind of clarify this implicit memory thing. And I think I've, I'm almost positive. I've talked about this on the pod before on some episode, but John, you tell me if this is an example of an implicit memory. Mm -hmm. So years ago, I was dating this guy that I wasn't super into. I didn't think we had a lot in common, but the sex was great. And in my, and and I, I thought we were on the same page, like, cool, this is casual, no big deal. And for him, I think he was on that page. Um, But anyway, I took a trip out of town. And when I came back, I texted him. And after four hours, I still hadn't heard back. And at that point, I lost my shit. I was on the floor sobbing. And to your point about the uh, prefrontal, prefrontal cortex, in that moment, it was like I was two people. I was the me who was sobbing on the floor, flooded with grief and fear. But then I was also this second me who was looking down on me being like, what the shit is happening right now? Like, this doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense. Mm -hmm. So in that scenario, I think the implicit memory was around perceived rejection and um, like its relationship to self-worth. So like Mm -hmm. as a child, when I reached out for love or approval or acceptance or affection from my parents and was met with being ignored or abandoned. Right. And so the implicit memory was something like when I reach out for acceptance and approval, I get ignored because I'm unlovable because there's something wrong with me. And so in that moment on the floor, sobbing over this dude, I wasn't having such a strong reaction because I was in love with him or something. It was because not getting a text back was echoing. It was, it was this memory 
mm-hmm. of being ignored as a child and bringing up the belief that I'm not worthy of being loved because I'm flawed. Does that sound mm-hmm. right? Does that sound like an implicit memory? Yes, exactly. So I think the cue here was not hearing back. And that seemed to cue those memory networks in the right hemisphere of your brain that held all these implicit memories of feeling unworthy, unlovable, rejected and abandoned. Um, And they came flooding back. But I also hear that you still had access to the part of you who could step back and be like, wait, what the shit is happening right now? Like, this just doesn't line up. And had you not had all those early wounding experiences, you, your memory networks wouldn't have had those implicit memories that got imposed on that experience. And so instead, if you had not had those implicit memories and those experiences, it might've sucked to not hear back. And it might've been tolerable And it may not have led to that level of dysregulation. Right. Yes. So, and this is like a conversation for another time, but I think maybe this is getting into like anxious attachment style versus like secure Mm -hmm. attachment style, like Mm -hmm. a secure attachment style would be like, well, this sucks, but you know, I guess whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a little sad, but I'm okay. Whereas like an anxious attachment person is like, I'm going to die. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Okay, so we all have implicit memories that are often guiding our beliefs. What are some of the common implicit memories that people who've suffered from narcissistic abuse might experience? Totally. I've got a whole list here because there are a number of things I really want listeners uh, who are survivors to start to get more familiar with and know what to look out for. Basically, before I get into that, I just wanted to explain that these implicit memories get reinforced through navigating different environments day in, day out. And it's more about the environments than about single events, because that is what leads to people needing to use the same types of procedural memories to survive them. That's what leads to the implicit memories getting more and more reinforced throughout those experiences. So, and especially when, the implicit memories have an element of danger. That's when the brain uh, is especially good at holding on to those and bringing them up like in a flash because our brains are so good at trying to protect us. So our brains are really good at remembering what's unsafe or unpleasant to help us avoid it or manage it in the future. Got it. Yeah. So one of the most common ones I see are implicit memories around feeling unsafe or anticipating danger, feeling on edge or hypervigilant, mm-hmm. like pretty much on a recurrent and persistent basis. Yeah. And this comes from years and years and years of not knowing when the other shoe would drop, essentially, with the narcissistic parent. Sometimes it's their reaction to something that their child did. Sometimes it's their reaction to how they perceived their child. Sometimes it's just about the parent's mood and -hmm. what's going on with the parent, but it gets really, really hard for the child to predict and anticipate. And that leads to implicit memories of basically a part of them constantly anticipating that something is going to go wrong. And in adulthood, this can also get triggered when things are going well when they reach a certain level of stability, when they achieve something, almost immediately, some part of them is like, oh shit, when is something going to fall apart? Mm. 
so that can also look like implicit memories around an anticipation that they're going to be dismissed or invalidated, their boundaries are not going to be respected. So for some adults who have lived through that and have had to anticipate that all the time, when they need to set a boundary, when they even think about needing to set a boundary, or when they recognize that a boundary is needed, there can be this reflexive flooding of rage. And it can even come up when they need to set a boundary with someone that hasn't even demonstrated evidence that they're going to be dismissive or invalidating, Mm. right? But still, they might just feel this rage and they might be like, what is going on? Like, I, there's no reason for me to feel this way right now, but I feel it. And it's because a part of them has just learned to reflexively expect that um, their needs are not going to be respected. There's going to be pushback. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, so I don't experience, I, I have the hardest time with boundaries. Well, okay. I shouldn't say that I'm having an easier time as I'm getting older, but I historically have had a, uh, very difficult time. Um, which is why I recently did a whole episode on healing from a fear of setting boundaries. Um, I, I don't experience rage, but I experience like like full body terror. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It can be terror. It can also be a shutdown and deflation that can happen when people have just learned through their life experiences that there's no point in yes. asserting their needs because it's just not going to be respected. They've internalized the belief that people are just not going to understand. They're just going to be generally dismissive So sometimes it can look like rage. Sometimes it can look like fear for people. Sometimes it can look like just kind of collapsing and feeling deflated. Like there's no point. And they also just can't muster up the energy to stand their ground. Yeah. Oh my God. I completely relate to that. Another example of a procedural memory can be like becoming really involuntarily and reflexively, like hyper-focused on other people's facial expressions, evidence of shifting moods, their body language, essentially scanning for signs of danger. And that's because there are lots of implicit and procedural memories that where this was really necessary growing up, like in these environments, they had to be on the lookout because if a parent had a shift in mood, it could mean abuse. It could mean something just really painful and overwhelming. So it's through the years of repetition of that, that leads to the reflexive nature of becoming really hypervigilant and tuned into other people's facial expressions and body language. Got it. And another example of an implicit memory I wanted to share is that People can feel like they are often just really invisible and alone in the world. And this comes from years of emotional neglect, Mm. um, especially in those really formative years when they're really young, where their experiences really shape their views of themselves, others in the world. And this can also get worse for people when they have learned to put on a mask to basically hide their true feelings because in family environments where a parent is narcissistic or has traits, it's safer to mask how they're feeling. Vulnerability can really trigger hostility 
in the parent. Oh my God. Whoa. I just, I just feel like we have to pause and say that again. Vulnerability can really trigger hostility in the narcissistic parent. Mm -hmm. Wow. Cause that hits so hard. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Sorry. Keep going. Yes. Yeah. So the mask protects them and yet also really reinforces the implicit memories around feeling invisible and like nobody ever gets them. Nobody ever understands or sees them. Um, So basically these all get held in the memory networks in the right hemisphere of the brain and in adulthood, they can come flooding back when there are enough cues that line up to activate these memory networks. That can look like when an adult survivor is wanting to make some plans for the weekend and they reach out to their friends, but nobody happens to be available that weekend. Oh my God. That might just activate that memory network or oh memory my God. networks. And they I'm... might just feel like they're back in a place where they're invisible and alone in the world when that might actually not be the case. Oh, fuck. Yes. I've had that exact experience. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So many things are like uh, being clarified. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. There's just a few more I wanted to share. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned this in the first episode where we talked about recovering from narcissistic abuse, but a tendency towards shame and feeling inadequate or defective. This comes from years and years and years of being gaslit, doubted, criticized, shamed, and devalued. Um, So even when adult survivors might have accomplishments in their lives, they might recognize certain internal strengths of theirs, they might still feel like they're constantly carrying this part of them that feels defective or ashamed of who they are. They might even have a part of them that feels ashamed for even existing because there were just so many ways that in their family environment, they were made to feel like they just don't deserve to take up space or everything they do, everything they even think even is wrong. Mm. So it may have been safer to just stay small and stay submissive in an environment like that. And these are the types of implicit and procedural memories that just get reflexive and easily triggered. Mm. But another thing is when people are younger, they are just more vulnerable to personalizing and internalizing because young children are at a certain level of brain development where they, they lack the ability to kind of step outside of themselves and totally. hold like a fuller view of yeah. the world around them and their relation to it. Right. Yeah. Like a three-year-old's not going to be like, Oh, my, my parents are yelling at me because, um, they're, they're, uh, mentally ill. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they're going to be like, I, I did something really wrong. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. It might even feel just way too threatening to even consider the idea that their parents are the ones with the limitations. Right. Because what would that mean for a child who really needs the protection and care of their parents? Totally. So that also can lead to um, these really negative core beliefs. I also want to get into one I see so often, which is procedural memories around self-criticism and self-loathing. Yeah, this can really develop when 
people have, especially younger people, um, they may have had lots of years of feeling really disempowered and really ashamed, really submissive. And in reaction to those years, they learn to kind of just like beat themselves into shape. They learn to be really harsh and militant to no longer be in that place of feeling really vulnerable and disempowered. Mm -hmm. So they learn to talk to themselves in a really cruel way. Oftentimes this can really mirror the way that they've heard the narcissistic parent talk to them. And sometimes it can feel really self-critical and like harsh, like kind of like fight energy. Sometimes it can feel like a deflated self-loathing kind of self-talk. So the difference would be like the fight-driven self-criticism can sound like, like what's wrong with you? Do better, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the self-loathing from a deflated, disempowered place can feel like and sound like I'm a piece of shit and I never deserve good things. Mm. When I was in my uh, late 20s, I remember very clearly... um, I'm trying to, I can't remember what was going on around this, but it probably had something to do with being rejected by a guy. But I remember like, I remember feeling like there was just something really wrong with me because I had such strong emotional reactions to things that didn't seem to bother other people. Mm -hmm. And I, I totally relate to the mask thing and feeling unseen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so like, no one ever saw this side of me, but I remember sobbing and writing in my journal over and over again, you made me wrong. And I was writing to God and I was saying, Mm -hmm. I was saying, you made me wrong. And I wrote it over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. because I was like, something is just wrong with me. Right. And so I think, I think that's, um, the deflated, (laughs) that's the deflated place. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the deflated place sounds like just given life experiences, given age and stage of development, that's how that younger version of you at that time made sense of things. Mm -hmm. Right, right. They're like, God made me in a way that was not in accordance with how things are supposed to go. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Totally. And when this has been so consistent in people's lives, they might even have tried to turn away from it and not look at it too deeply or critically. Mm. They might just really believe that this is who they are, you know, and it's, it's hard to catch, like, what are the implicit memories and procedural memories playing out here that are layered on top of how I'm interpreting things and where do they come from? Because they've just gotten so reflexive and involuntary and they've persisted over such a long period of time in people's lives. Right. Yeah. The last one I wanted to share is another really common one. It's the sense of wariness and mistrust in others because there can just be a lot of implicit memories around expecting that kindness and praise comes with strings attached or some kind of risk attached Mm -hmm. to it. So that might look like when the narcissistic parent is being really inconsistent with their child, you know, when the child is living up to their agenda, giving the the parent narcissistic supply, then the parent is going to be like kind and see this child as good, you know, uh, reward them in different ways. And it's so easy for this child to do something quote unquote wrong Uh and then be punished again or mistreated or emotionally abandoned 
fast forward to adulthood when someone is trying to be kind to this survivor a part of them just reflexively anticipates there's some kind of strings attached or some kind of danger is going to follow. So there's just going to be this wariness and mistrust. And then that makes it harder for survivors to let kindness in and really receive the emotional benefits of it. Oh God. Oh God. Okay. Shit. Man. So (laughs) these are like, these are so, um, these are hitting. I think I actually don't do that one, but I, think my sister does. I think that's, I think Mm -hmm. mine was to become a people pleaser and hers was to become super wary of everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. okay. Let's talk about perfectionism as an implicit procedural memory that happens Mm -hmm. as a result of narcissistic abuse. Cause I think that's a big one. Totally, totally. And we touched on it in episode one and that was one of the topics where I really wanted to help listeners get to understand like what to look out for, like how to start tackling this. Mm-hmm. But still, I think it's best to work with a therapist to serve as a guide and mm-hmm. helping them understand which, which things, which aspects of their internal experiences are those implicit memories, those remnants of those traumatic environments. But perfectionism, as we talked about, can really develop from environments where people had to constantly fear upsetting or failing a narcissistic parent or other people in their lives. Mm -hmm. That feels really painful to people because failing can lead to, or feeling like failing or being made to feel like they failed can come with rage, passive aggressiveness, blame, withholding of love and warmth. So they're constantly having to learn to anticipate that and be on edge about it. And the procedural memories in reaction to that are are where perfectionism really gets reinforced. People learn to basically tell themselves and push themselves to just become more perfect so they don't have to feel all those painful repercussions or the painful implicit memories that come back when they're anticipating the repercussions. So the procedural memories people can look out for might be the fear that comes up when they just start thinking about the possibility that they might've done something wrong or not perfect. It might, you know, the fear might bring images of people being let down, people recognizing the quote unquote mistakes and reacting to them. Mm -hmm. Like these images might just spontaneously flash in their minds and bring a lot of fear. The procedural memories might be the thoughts like I need to like crack down and perfect this. I need to be more perfect. This is what I need to do. You know, these are the procedural memories that people can really look out for. Oh my God. Oh, John. Um, wow. Yes. I, that is like, that's hitting so hard. And, um, is this a good place for me to add a story? Oh yeah. Go for it. Okay. So just the other day, I listened to a podcast episode on a really good podcast called a little bit culty. Um, and they had survivors of the Bentino Massaro spiritual group. I'm putting spiritual group in quotation marks and two of those survivors that they had on were women. And these women were saying that this man love bombed them separately. 
told them each that they were, that he was destined to be with them. Like, Oh, I've been looking for a woman who can match my energy and spiritual levels. And you're the one blah, blah, blah. And then later would accuse them of being too low vibration for him to have sex with and say that an evil entity had entered them. And that's why he couldn't have sex with them. So he was going to have sex with someone else. And why weren't they putting in the work to be spiritually pure and to match his level of spirituality and on and on. And the underlying message was that they were profoundly imperfect and they weren't good enough for him. And I think for people who've been in narcissistic romantic relationships, or for those of us who are raised by narcissistic parents, there was often a feeling that if only we could be smarter or prettier or more athletic, or for me with my dad, it was like, it was so nebulous because there was never a specificity around it. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. he ever said to me, like, if only you could do this better or whatever, I would love Mm you. Um, He was just always yelling at me or criticizing me or ignoring me, like no matter how well-behaved or accomplished or helpful or whatever I was. And, and actually to your point about procedural memories around perfectionism, I remember being like 12 and being on a plane flying to spend the summer with my dad and thinking to myself, I'm literally having the thought I'm going to be perfect this time. And Mm -hmm. he's never going to yell at me and thinking that over like that was my mantra and I was like really focusing on it on the plane ride Mm -hmm. and of course you know it never worked so that perfectionism for me became a vehicle for losing my self-worth and self-love because he would always find flaws in me and criticize me and yell at me um, or just ignore me completely and eventually that brought me to the belief that something about who I was at my core was deeply flawed and that made me unlovable And that's why I kept getting treated that way from him, you know, to your point about kids. It's like, it's all about us. Right. And even even as an adult, I feel it come up all the time. Like I Mm -hmm. feel if I make a mistake, I, I I'm flooded with fear. Right. There's several things I want to touch on here. The first thing is that because of all the work you've done on yourself, you now know not to identify with those impulses that just reflect reflexively come up. Right. If you feel like you haven't done something perfectly, um, you know what to look out for. And you know that the brain just kind of throws out these implicit and procedural memories involuntarily. And um, so there's more distance from it. And you know not to just re-engage in those thought patterns, which have become so procedural through those experiences, right? Yeah. This example also just really shows how the message didn't need to be so explicit from your father. Like he didn't say, if only you were more perfect, then I would stop yelling, criticizing, ignoring, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was more about how at that age, that young version of you made sense of what was going on. And it's also that all those life experiences leading up to that age they all set the stage for how that version of you interpreted those events. So everything kind of builds on each other in that way. And implicit memories can inform the way that younger versions of us make sense of the environments and behaviors of others. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, it's just way more easy for young people to personalize their parents' mistreatment. And this is especially so if they haven't been exposed to enough reflections around them that help them gradually learn that their parents are the ones 
who have the emotional limitations and distorted and inconsistent perceptions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's just not, that's just not a thought that a four-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or even a 15-year-old is going to have on their own, you know, they're, they're just not going to leap to that conclusion. And if no no one ever interrupts that thought, you'll Mm -hmm. go into adulthood just going through those motions again and again, like something's wrong with me. I need to be like a great example is, um, I mean, I was, I guess I was an adult, but I was 18 and I got cheated on. And I, um, my first thought was if only I had been prettier, this wouldn't have happened. And I thought prettier meant thinner, uh, because that was what I had been taught. Uh, you know, in this like fat phobic misogynistic Mm -hmm. culture. And so I became anorexic. I just started, uh, starving myself for like, uh, you know, the better part of a year, I guess, until I started dating someone who loved to eat (laughs) and, but like on my own, if I hadn't started dating that guy, I really don't know how long that eating disorder would have gone on, Mm -hmm. but it was all, um, spun up in this idea of a, something's really wrong with me. B, right. I can fix it by being more perfect. C, being perfect um, in this context of like romance or whatever means being prettier and being prettier means being thinner. And I also want to add, we talked about the cultural gaslighting, right? So we, the another environment that we develop in is the cultural environments that we're in. Right. And when there is cultural gaslighting around fat phobia, you know, that's basically the message that it's pe- it's fat people's fault. Right. And so that also fed into how that young version of you oh um, made sense of things. And it was compounded and exacerbated by the negative messaging from the family environments. Oh shit. God. Yeah. That's such a good call. Yes. Cause we were even talking about narcissism within the culture mm-hmm. last time in the last episode. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about this process that you were chatting with me about this. And we were taught, it was, you were teaching me about this thing that was like, so fascinating to me, decoding all of this through the instincts. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Totally, totally. Um, This can be really a helpful framework for starting to understand our triggered reactions and where they're coming from, why they're getting triggered and what they're trying to do for us. Because essentially one of the biggest takeaways that I took from understanding this framework was that the triggered reactions, even though they're distressing, they lead to internal conflicts and challenges in our lives, they are meant to help us in some way. And it's all because our triggered reactions come from implicit and procedural memories. And the procedural memories are driven by our survival instincts. And our survival instincts are shared with all other mammals, because we're mammals too, And there are five of them basically in reaction to different types of threats, one or more of these five survival instincts get activated to try to keep us safe. And we tend to be more familiar with fight or flight. Uh, Just to recap, you know, fight is the survival instinct that 
gets activated, when there is something threatening that just feels wrong, that we don't like, feels unfair. Um, it's essentially the survival instinct that mobilizes energy that's kind of like prepare for battle now. You know, and that can manifest as hypervigilance, anger, rage, judgmentalness, um, a need to control something. Um, Basically, fight is all about approach the threat and do something about it. And flight is all about get away from the threat. You know, so that can manifest as becoming ambivalent or because essentially ambivalence is like if i have one foot in and one foot out i feel safer i can dip mm-hmm. whenever i need to at a moment's notice i can escape exactly exactly and escaping can also look like compulsive behaviors you know substance use disordered eating these all have different ways of creating some numbing mm. which helps us get some distance from distressing memories feelings thoughts etc Okay. But then in addition to fight or flight, there's also freeze. There's also submit or fawn. And there's also attach. So freeze is all about, like, you can think of the deer in the headlights. You can also think of the rabbit that freezes when it senses a predator. Okay. Um, Because if it freezes, it's less likely to be seen. And then it's less vulnerable to getting eaten. Right. If it kind of blends in with its surroundings. We have a similar freeze response. You know, this can look like walking on eggshells, wanting to be seen and not heard, not wanting to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. It can feel like we are literally just kind of stuck in our bodies. We can't really make a move, can't make a decision. But then there's a lot of worrying about like, is this the right time? Is this the right move? What if something bad happens? That's the freeze response. And it usually brings uh, a feeling of fear along with it. Can I ask real quick, that Mm -hmm. example that I gave of um, staying with my friend and her husband. Oh, yes. That's Mm -hmm. freeze. I went Mm -hmm. and Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally. And maybe there was some freeze in the tiptoeing as well. You know, if there was a sense of fear. Yeah. Right. um, Then that that may have had some freeze with that. Totally submit is the survival instinct that kicks in when we can't use fight and we can't use flight. So a good example of submit is kind of like if we were robbed at gunpoint and we are not trained fighters Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we're not quick runners. And it's also just not a good idea to run in a situation like that because we don't know if this person is going to attack us or shoot us, right? right? If we try to run. And then if we recognize we're not a good fighter, then submit is the one that makes the most sense. Submit is essentially like, all right, let me give up. It's all about you. Let's make this as easy as possible Mm -hmm. because I might not make this. And if I make it great, but I'm not going to try too hard. It makes us more submissive and passive, people-pleasing. And in a situation like being robbed at gunpoint, that actually is what can really save us. Because if we have any, any evidence of fight energy, that can trigger more hostility totally. in the person who's robbing us, right? So Submit is one that can really make sense when you look at the environment and what was going on. Yeah. And, uh-huh. um, okay. Uh, no. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Okay. Well, the last one is attach. Um, this is one that 
if people have a lot of implicit memories around feeling really alone in the world, really invisible, on the outside looking in all the time, they can be especially susceptible to the attached survival instinct. Basically, that is the survival instinct that kicks in whenever there's a fear of abandonment or a fear of rejection, a fear of being alone forever. When the survival instinct gets triggered, it can cause people to become really fearful and compulsively try to win someone back or try to establish some kind of dependency so they're less likely to lose people, like really searching for any sign of security, of um, not losing somebody, um, really needing signs of connection. Sean! <laughs> Fuck! I've heard of all of these flight, fight, freeze. Recently, I heard of fawning, which I super related to because that was really how it was. And my house was like, none of, um, I was really concerned with creating, with like eradicating conflict of all kinds and creating like, I don't know. I was trying to have a good family, you know? So like fawning seemed to work the best, especially I think when you're around narcissists, mm-hmm. fawning really mm-hmm. calms them down and, and yes. will um, get the response that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Attach is the one that really blows me away. Mm-hmm. That one's new, but mm-hmm. the, I super relate to that one mm-hmm. as an adult. Um, and I actually, when I think about it, like, as a child too, I think my goal was like, let me, um, let me figure out what I can do to get you to not be mad, to get you to come back to me mm-hmm. as my parent. Yeah. And I think that ended up repeating mm-hmm. as an adult where mm-hmm. I was, you know, my, my implicit memory was around like, I'm unlovable. Mm-hmm. And so if, but if I could get you to attach, then Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to feel that feeling of being yes, unlovable. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that kind of makes me want, it, it reminds me of something else I kind of want to add. Oh yeah. Um, I have seen similar versions of what you described. And um, basically when there have been a lot of implicit memories around I'm unlovable and that's why my parent never pays attention to me. I feel so alone in this way. There's this part of them that holds these implicit memories. And in adulthood, when people are seeking to build romantic relationships, for example, if this person that they are dating or in a relationship with exhibits some red flags, they might have a part of them that recognizes the red flags, but they have this attached driven part of them that is so afraid of feeling those painful feelings again, of feeling so alone, so unseen. So it's from that place of those painful implicit memories that those attached procedural memories can really take over. Some of them might involve like minimizing the red flags because that part of them that remembers all those painful implicit memories doesn't want to feel that again doesn't want to risk uh having to feel so alone uh so abandoned again so that part of them is gonna hyper focus on the connection and risk of losing the connection and that causes people to 
have a hard time really taking in the information about red flags because there's this part of them that is so quick to idealize the other person and just hyper-focus on the threat of potentially losing them. Fuck. God. That rings so deeply true. Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. Wow. Man, okay. Let's talk about internal fragmentation. You explain this to me as a process that happens when fragmented younger parts of ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, take over and affect our beliefs and how we behave. Is that, am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, fragmentation is something that is so common in people who have survived developmental trauma, basically trauma that happened over a long period of time when they were young, growing up. And basically it happens over time when people need to learn to navigate different levels of threat in different environments. And it gets even more exacerbated by what we call dissociative compartmentalization And dissociative compartmentalization is really necessary when young people are surviving developmental trauma. So I'll kind of illustrate what that looks like. If you think about a young person who has an abusive environment at home, when they go to school the next day, like this is their opportunity to get away from the memories of home, um, the environment of home. It's their opportunity to learn to be a good student, make good friends, and just like keep moving on in their normal lives away from the trauma. And what that involves, though, is they have to compartmentalize all those painful memories of what happened the night before, of the fear of going back home, like they can't let that stay front and center because that's going to get in the way of them making friends and focusing in school. But what that also means, though, is those painful implicit memories don't really get dealt with. People lose more and more awareness of them, and they don't go away. They're still there in the right hemispheres of the brain. And in addition to that, Survivors of narcissistic abuse as children also often don't have many supports around them, people who really get it. um, And again, that can be exacerbated by the procedural memories around masking what's actually going on with them, right? So what that means, though, is when people don't have enough support, there's even less opportunity to get some resolution, of those compartmentalized implicit memories. And that's how these things persist. And that's also how fragmentation can manifest in adulthood. It's kind of like, you know, if there were a, if that child that I described in that example of going to school in adulthood is trying to make some adult friends, for example, there is this dissociatively compartmentalized part of them that is remembering all these threats, um, gets activated, like takes over their internal experience. And then it gets really confusing. There's this split, there's this fragmentation, like one part of them is trying to make friends. This other part of them is like really afraid of all these possibilities of what could happen when these friends become harmful, um, neglectful, abandon them, et cetera. Oof. That, that really, when you're talking about um, 
having to go to school the next day and kind of, you know, it, for me, I remember like my whole thing at school was I'm smart. I'm fun. Um, I had a really easy time making friends, but it was, but it was because I was like very intentionally leaving behind what was go, what had happened the night before. Yeah. And yeah, I like when we, t- when we think about like what happens as adults, when we've done that over and over and over again, procedurally, um, as children, like I did this, um, I did this, I don't know what to call it, but it was basically like an emotional intelligence boot camp years ago. Mm. And one of the things that they had us do was find a partner and um, that partner had to scream in your face over and over again. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Screaming. Mm. And so this is a room of like, you know, 150 people, half of them are screaming in the other person's face. So it's really loud. Mm. And so at first I was just like yelling out the things that I sort of consciously wanted. I was like, I want to fall in love. I want a beautiful home. I want to love my career, you know, like whatever. Mm -hmm. But as I kept going, all of a sudden I started screaming. I want to be seen. I want to be seen. And I was sobbing. Mm. And at the time I had not had enough therapy to know what was happening. And I kind of felt this shame, like, uh, like an influencer who hadn't gotten, gotten enough likes or something. And I felt embarrassed, Mm. but after being in therapy for a while, I started to realize that, um, yeah, there had been this mask of being joyful, which I was joyful you know, that is a part of who I am, Mm -hmm. but I was also depressed. Mm -hmm. And I remember in high school, I would like go to school and like, I was president of my class and I was captain of the dance team and, um, you know, whatever, all the things, you know, 4.0 GPA, all the things. And then I would go home and I would literally turn off all the lights in my room, light a candle, put on like sad Mm nineties, you know, whatever Tori Amos or Fiona Apple and, Mm -hmm. and just, and just sob and sob and sob and sob knowing I couldn't tell, like, I couldn't talk about it to my mom because she, she, like you said, vulnerability, Mm -hmm. um, kind of like results in hostility from the narcissist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I totally relate to that. Yeah. Right. And just like how you described that depressed part of you got compartmentalized and that was necessary for you to feel like you could build what felt like a normal life to you. And, um, at the same time, that meant that that depressed part of you didn't get some support and resolution, but it was all out of necessity. It was all out of feeling like you could survive. Yeah. Oof. God. So what all do we need to know about internal fragmentation as it relates to narcissistic abuse? Yeah, I think what is important to understand is that fragmentation is really, really common in survivors who have lived through developmental trauma. And you can recognize fragmentation whenever there's a sense of a split or an internal conflict that is hard to navigate. And the split comes from, as we've talked about, these trauma-related parts of us that have learned certain survival strategies driven by different survival instincts. And these strategies made sense 
given the age, given the environment, et cetera. So I think it's super important to work with a therapist who really gets all this and can help people get more and more clear about like which internal experiences are coming from implicit and procedural memories, which are more about my programming versus which are more about the full picture of what's happening right now. Because without that support, without this knowledge, it's so confusing to navigate. You know, it can really conflict with the drives that people naturally have for health and healing. I can share a few examples of what that looks like. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, Something I do see pretty common in my work with therapy clients is when a survivor is in a romantic relationship, uh, an adult survivor, they're the quote unquote normal life adult part of them really wants a sense of security and stability through the romantic relationship. But then there is this protective part of them that might easily find faults in the partner. And essentially Mm -hmm. this is a part of them who reflexively anticipates that there's going to be some failure or some harm. And this part of them is essentially keeping the partner at a distance out of self-protection, maybe through being really highly critical, but that's all out of a fear that they're going to eventually be really harmful or abandon them. So all while they're trying to build this intimacy and trust, there's this part of them that's kind of like working against them, but out of protection, uh, reflexively, you know, and mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to say, I feel like that essentially sums up my relationship to trying to date. Like, I think the, um, I've really struggled. Like I mentioned earlier, I have, I I've worked on this belief around men don't love women, Mm -hmm. but like I, and maybe, maybe I'm bringing this up because maybe other people out there um, can relate, but like, I haven't had a boyfriend since high school <laughs> and I'm 41. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really get so angry about patriarchal sort of issues mm-hmm. and misogyny. And mm-hmm. um, I, I have often wondered like, yeah, but like, lots of feminists have partners. Like what is going on that I kind of consistently Mm -hmm. don't, and I feel really comfortable around women, but men, I get like, I I get, I feel really comfortable around anyone who doesn't, doesn't identify Mm -hmm. as like a cis het man. And I think what, like what you're talking about right now is helping me is illuminating sort of what's going on. It's like, mm-hmm. um, right. yeah, this exact, it's like this right. sense of this hypervigilance and this sense of like, yeah, I want to be with someone, but also in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking you're, you're not safe. You people, you guys mm-hmm. aren't safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. And that also speaks to how these trauma related parts of us we recognize it's easier to recognize them through black or white thinking Mm. Um, when there is, especially when it comes to a younger part of us. And this is especially apparent the younger the part of us is 
their the beliefs um, tend to be more polarized or black or white, whereas when we can recognize thought patterns that can hold complexity and nuance and hold the both and rather than either or, right? right? That lets us know that we are more connected with that wiser, more integrated, more adult part of us. Mm. But back to that example, like there can be this critical fight driven part who is worried about harm and um, keeping this partner at a distance out of self-protection while the adult part of them is wanting security and stability. And then at the same time, there can be another part that is so worried about ending up being alone again in the world, Mm. worried about losing this person. So all while this person is trying to build a relationship, they feel like they are just constantly ping-ponging between different parts of them with different beliefs and implicit and procedural memories. And in that way, it gets really hard to hold a consistent view of themselves and their partner and the relationship. Oh my God. Wow. That is, yeah, I completely relate to that. And it's not for me, it's not just like in one-on-one relationships. It's like in my relationship to cis het men in general. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk about healing this stuff because it really sucks. (laughs) It sucks to experience this and we don't have to keep suffering. And I really want to make that clear. And that's why we wanted to do this episode, you know, is to like talk about, to help people feel seen and understood and also talk about healing it. Um, what's clear. And one thing I wanted to say, what's clear about recovering from narcissistic abuse is that the abuse is so deep that, you know, thinking about procedural memories and implicit memories, it's like someone hacked into us and wrote code for our programs without our permission. Mm -hmm. And we start acting and believing in accordance with that coding. We believe we're not enough. We're bad. We won't be loved. We don't get to have happiness. We have to work super hard to earn love and approval. That was a big one for me. We don't get to feel safe. It goes on and on. In your experience, what healing modalities are most effective when it comes to healing from narcissistic abuse? Yeah, I think it's so important to work with a therapist who is somatically trained. Mm -hmm. That means this is a therapist who understands the nervous system and how that affects how a triggered nervous system is going to affect our our capacities, basically, Mm -hmm. because um, especially when it comes to trauma, like the the stress response, it's physiological. And like we talked about earlier, it causes parts of the brain to get disconnected and even shut down like the prefrontal cortex. And when the prefrontal cortex is shut down, that means we really lose access to the part of us that can be self-reflective on our internal experiences, the part of our brain that can recall new information and skills we are still learning. Mm. And if we can't calm our nervous systems down directly first and bring our prefrontal cortex back online, then we're not even going to be able to remember or apply a lot of the skills that we are learning in therapy. Um, And also when it comes to fragmentation and different parts of us holding different beliefs from different ages and environments, it really depends on what, what triggered part of us is most active in a certain moment 
Because if we were to work with a therapist who just looks at us as one person, one mind, mm. then we may not address the, the kind of like shift in beliefs and perceptions that happens when we get blended with a certain younger trauma-related part of us. Mm. You know, so it's really important to work with a therapist who understands a lens of multiplicity which means that we're just comprised of different parts of us at different ages, driven by different survival instincts. And also kind of like I talked about earlier about working with the nervous system directly. If we were to just strictly work with a, a clinician who is only looking at the cognitive level of things, then we really miss out on the opportunity to um, learn how to like get back in our bodies and um, calm our bodies down because the physiological reactions get triggered by the implicit memories in the right hemisphere of our brain. We would not, we would just basically miss out on addressing like all the implicit memories that affect us physiologically if we just stay at a cognitive level. Right. Yeah. So somatic modalities to look out for would include, as you've mentioned, um, EMDR. That is super effective. It's the most researched trauma uh, modality. Mm-hmm. Also, anything involving parts work uh, is going to really look at um, the relationship, the relationships uh, among the, the parts in our system. I highly recommend what's called trauma-informed stabilization treatment. It is a newer modality of parts work that blends a bit of sensory motor. It builds off of internal family systems, but through a more trauma-informed lens. It also really builds on structural dissociation theory. Basically, what trauma-informed stabilization or TIST um, helps clients achieve is working toward a real resolution of the manifestation of developmental trauma through um, helping clients build secure relationships with all parts of them and especially the ones that create a lot of disturbance in their lives, Mm. it's so tempting to want to turn away from the parts of us that cause the most challenge in our lives, Mm -hmm. you know? But these are the parts that especially need care and support. So what that does is if you think about like an abused child who feels really vulnerable and raw in the world and unprotected, and they finally get to build a secure relationship with an attuned, safe adult, that alone can gradually over time help this child um, kind of like lower the defenses. Mm -hmm. Because this child essentially feels like, all right, finally, I'm not alone in the world. Finally, there is someone who gets it. And if they don't, they're going to want to get it. And if they're not available to support me, they will make the time for me, you know, and they, this adult is thinking of my best interests. Like it just helps this child's nervous system kind of gets, feel more and more safe over time. And essentially that is the type of support that TIST helps clients learn to extend to all trauma related parts of them. And the work can look really nuanced. So it's important to work with a trained therapist in this, mm-hmm. but it really involves like taking the time to f- 
first of all, learn to recognize the, the procedural memories that cause themes in their lives, themes of challenges. So mm-hmm. that helps people learn to not readily identify with these triggered impulses. Mm-hmm. They learn to slow down and be like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, this is super familiar to me. I think this is so consistent with that 12-year-old part of me. I think that's the part of me that's really triggered right now. Let me take a moment and just support them. Right. And that's going to look like pausing, calming the nervous system, taking the time to ask this part what they are most worried about, what is most bothering them, mm-hmm. and um, validating this part, um, providing safe, corrective experiences for this part, uh, wanting to advocate for this part's needs in their everyday lives. Wow. You know? So yeah, that's TIST. I highly, highly recommend it. Wow. Okay. This is so, okay. This is incredible. And it reminds me that um, there years ago, I was working with a somatic therapist who also did inner family systems work, which is parts work. Mm-hmm. And um, for people who aren't familiar with IFS, it's a really interesting modality where um, essentially, and I didn't, I had never worked with it before. I didn't even know what it was when she brought it up to me, but essentially it's like, you look at different parts of yourself, how old you were when that part kind of came up and what it has to tell you. Mm-hmm. And um, we were working together around my beliefs around men because I was sexually assaulted by a close friend in 2017. And when we did, when we went into this session, what actually came up when she was like, cause you sort of visualize, you kind of like go inside and like, mm-hmm. look for who comes up. Yep. And it was a 14 year old version of myself. I was raped when I was 14. Um, but, but it had happened so long ago that in this session, I, I totally wasn't expecting 14 year old me to come up. You know, I was expecting this 30 something year old version of myself to come up. But anyway, when she did, it was so profound because she was completely lifeless. Like the image that I saw when, while I was doing the visualization with my therapist, she was, I was looking at this young 14 year old girl who was completely pale. She had no color and she was like a wet rag in my arms. She was so depleted and so grief stricken that it was like she had no energy at all. And um, my therapist, you know, I was sort of like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And luckily my therapist kind of took the reins a little bit and was like feeding me questions to ask her. And what she started telling me was this, this 14 year old version of myself started telling me was that she was so sorry because she felt like she had done something wrong to cause the rape. And she was sorry because she felt like if only she hadn't fucked up and caused that situation, I would have had an easier time with men as an adult. So she felt all of this guilt and grief and responsibility And, um, it was such a powerful and heartbreaking experience because when the rape happened, when I was 14, I tried to tell my mom about it, both about the experience. And months later, I tried to show her a poem that I'd written about it. And by the way, I didn't realize when I was 14 that I had been raped. I didn't, I thought rape had to look a very specific way. And like a gun had to be involved. And it probably was with someone in an alley, you know, like, 
I, so I did, I wasn't using the, that language. I didn't say that I had been raped, but I was trying to explain the experience. But anyway, um, when, when I told my mom about it, her response was verbatim. She said, I can't believe he would do that to me as in to her. And like, I wasn't seen at all. (laughs) And when I showed her a poem that I'd written about it several months later, she read it and said, aren't you over this yet? And just handed it back to me. And that was it. Mm. And at the time, you know, none of my friends were anywhere near having sex. Some of my friends had never even been kissed at that point. So I remember feeling so alone and so depressed as a result and, and really spiraled into a depression. And this moment doing this work, this IFS somatic work with this therapist, that was the first time in my entire life that that 14 year old girl ever had the opportunity to really express her experience and her grief to someone, mm-hmm. to some, someone who could receive it. Right. Um, yeah. And like hear her truth and what she'd gone through and how her heart had broken and what she was afraid of and what she'd come to believe as a result. Um, so I, I can, I, I can't advocate enough for IFS work and parts work and somatic work. And um, I guess I also just want to say that one thing that happens with narcissistic abuse is that you don't ever feel heard or seen in your truth. Like, you know, my, my dad never heard or saw me. My mom could hear and see me as long as she liked what she was hearing or seeing, but if she didn't like it was dismissed right away. So being witnessed, I think is super healing. So, um, if you, for whatever reason, this is, this is my stance. If you can't find a good somatic therapist, maybe, maybe start with a regular therapist in the interim while you're able until you're able to find a a better therapist, or I don't want to say better, but someone who, um, can do parts work with you because just the process of talking to someone who can hear you and have compassion and witness your, your painful truth can also start the process of healing. And then, and then, and also maybe if you're not quite ready to jump into parts work, um, it can be a place to start, but to your point, John, IFS work, parts work, somatic therapy, it goes, it goes so deep and it goes into your body and into the muscle memory of trauma as well. And starts addressing these fragmented parts of ourselves from childhood and traumatic periods in time that were never emotionally tended to. Right. So, um, if you're able to find a, a good somatic therapist who does parts work, like all the better. Right. And through that IFS that you described, you gave that young part of you a missing corrective experience. Mm. Yeah. Right? Without that, without that, that memory network, that part of you might continue on feeling like no one's ever going to get this. No one's right. ever going to truly see me and support me in this way. And I'm always going to feel like I have to carry this on my own. But because you were able to get that support, you helped her start to kind of rewrite the script inside. Yes, totally. Yeah. It was like, it was so, I mean, obviously I was sobbing through this whole process, but it was a pivot point, you know, mm-hmm. so real shit. Uh, we went so deep and we dealt with some real shit and, and things started changing after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned something called neurofeedback treatment. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I think this is especially helpful for people who, whose brains and nervous systems are so highly reactive, so quick to disconnect, so quick to dissociate. 
where um, it's really hard for them to make use of talk therapy. Mm-hmm. And full transparency, I've been there before myself, where um, I was getting a lot of insight and clarity out of therapy, but I wasn't able to tackle the reactivity that would just kind of like kick in, mm-hmm. um, like involuntarily so quickly. I couldn't tackle the dissociation that was making me feel like I was constantly half half here, half somewhere else, or sometimes like really disconnected from my immediate experience. And so neurofeedback is what really start is, is where I started to really see improvements in those areas. It's really different when it comes to what we think of as mental health therapy. Um, it doesn't involve talking, but there is talking as, as far as like information gathering, you know, history taking and whatnot, but there isn't really processing and essentially clients get uh, electric sensors added to parts of their scalp and these sensors get connected to hardware and software that reads the electrical signals going on in someone's brain and it's kind of feeding back information that is going to kind of like create this feedback loop that helps the brain kind of recalibrate. Usually it looks like a video game. Um, The one I used a lot was like, there are these rocket ships on a screen. And uh, as long as I am staying calm and focusing, the rocket ships keep moving. But the moment that my mind drifts, the game kind of pauses. So it's teaching my brain to like get back on track and stay focused and stay calm when there isn't any stimuli around me. And that gives me a reason to get dissociated or start thinking about something else, you know? Wow. So uh, gradually it's kind of like training the brain to calm down and stay more present. And that actually made me make even more use of the insights I was getting in, in my therapy leading up to that. Wow. Wow. That is so amazing. I want to do that. It's a game changer. I wish it were more available to people. Like it can be hard to access. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, do you find, how do you like, do you have to look for a therapist who does that or how do you, how do you find it? I did. Well, I started out by researching more about it. So I first, I mean, I heard about it throughout years of grad school, but never really looked into it. And it wasn't until I read The Body Keeps the Score Mm -hmm. that I got more curious about it. And then I started watching YouTube videos about it. And that's when I was like, yeah, I think it's time for me to look into this. So what I did was I went on Psychology Today and I searched for therapists who have that listed in the way they work. I also asked the therapist I was working with at the time if she had any recommendations, I ended up going with one of her recommendations, but yeah, you can just Google it. You can look on psychology today. Cool. Okay. And I know also that you had some book recommendations that you wanted to throw out there. Mm-hmm. Well, again, thank you for recommending um, Stop Walking on Eggshells. I gobbled that shit up so fast. Oh, good. <laughs> and yes. it was so helpful and clarifying. Great. Um, yeah, it even helped me get more clear about my own experiences. Totally. Okay, so yeah, first one, Stop Walking on Eggshells. Great book. Yes. Um, I really want to recommend a book about TIST and what that can look like, more about the theory, but it's all written 
in a really easy to understand way okay. um, and gives really practical things for people to start practicing and looking out for. But oh, still, cool. I still recommend working with a therapist because there's still a lot of complexity and nuance. The book is called Healing the Fragmented Selves mm-hmm. of Trauma Survivors. And it's written by Janina Fisher, who developed this uh, modality of trauma treatment. Cool. Okay. Amazing. Janina spelled J-A-N-I-N-A. Mm-hmm. Okay. And last name is Fisher. And I also want to add um, for any clinicians listening who are interested in this, when it comes to providing therapy in the TIST model, like I said, there's a lot of nuance and complexity in how you are guiding clients through this. So I really recommend if you want to practice this with clients to get trained in Janina's online trainings. There's TIS level one and TIS level two out right now. And I also have no commercial interest in promoting this. I just want to get the good word out because it wasn't until I understood fragmentation and structural dissociation that I was really able to even more deeply understand my own internal world and how trauma has affected me and then help my clients in this way. So yeah, I just want to get the good word out. And the trainings are actually made discounted for clinicians of color, which is super awesome because awesome. trainings are super expensive. Yeah. Um, it's about half off for clinicians of color. So yeah, really Amazing. recommend any clinicians listening to get into it. Cool. Oh my God. John, I cannot thank you nearly enough for coming on. This has been uh, way more eye-opening than I even knew it was going to be. And, and <laughs> oh, we had yay. like you know, I already knew it was going to be amazing, but I feel like I am able to walk away with so much information. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I know, I know you have an Insta. Do you want to put that out there in case people want to chat with you or, or connect with you in some way? Oh yeah, sure. It's, um, Lizy underscore Amor. And it's spelled L-E-E-Z-Y underscore A-M-O-R. Awesome. Okay, cool. And if you want to hit me up, I am on Insta at Remy's R-E-M-E-E-Z. And you can also shoot me an email at patramaparty at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, until next time, baby, enjoy the party.